Welcome to the J. Scott Outdoors podcast. Tonight we have a fun episode with my friend Chris Stone out of California, the turkey slayer, turkey killing machines. Uh, you just got off a cool uh, juniors hunt, uh, I believe, just opened in California, and you, I saw your uh, video of, of your hunt. Um, Chris, how you doing? I'm good, Jay. How you doing? Good. Um, tell me a little bit about these youth hunts that you just got done in California with. Um, so, yeah, we just uh, had our junior uh, turkey hunts here in California. Uh, they allow a week before the general season to start. Um, they have a, a junior weekend turkey hunt, so they give you Saturday and Sunday to take out the kids, the juniors, and uh, let them get a chance at turkeys before you know they start getting some pressure and uh it's a pretty cool thing they do and gives the kids a little extra opportunity and um uh, it's it's fun i don't miss it that's for sure <laughs> it's um those junior hunts in arizona are this kind of the same way that the kids get first crack at it you know and they should um but it it you know for an adult and going on these hunts it's pretty awesome because the the quality of hunt is phenomenal is it not i mean usually year in and year out these youth hunts are phenomenal yeah you know usually there's the birds have absolutely no pressure um they're not wised up to the calls or the decoys or the setups at all and so you know it's uh for the kids they definitely get to see plenty of action um you know majority of the time um but yeah it uh it's it's pretty great and you know of course it's weather dependent um i've had a few junior hunts where there's been rain and snow and uh saturday there was a little bit of rain but not enough to put a damper on things that's for sure from the from watching the video it looked as though you had roosted the birds the night before and were set up pretty tight to them and had everything dialed in um why don't you talk a little bit about how the hunt unfolded it seems like those birds flew down you know right off the roost and came right to the decoy spread yeah, um, you know, it's, it's a spot that I've hunted for several years, um, and kind of it's, you know, it's pretty much the same exact area, same spot where they roost year after year in this particular area. Um, and so, I mean, you know, just kind of general information, you know, as long as I take my experience in, um, set up correctly, we usually have a, a decent hunt there, um, we were uh, set up, um, these birds, uh, about eye level with them. Uh, they seemed to either fly and come out of the roost and land up on this knoll on top, which is where we were set up, or they go the opposite way and land down in this big meadow, big valley below the roost. Um, but, yeah, as soon as uh, it got light enough to where, you know, it was getting close to legal shooting light and... Um, my junior hunter Clara, uh, who was a friend of my daughter's and um, friends with her dad, uh, as soon as you know she could see visibly and see her sights, uh, started started pouring the calls to the birds and um, did my first fly down cackle with some pretty aggressive yelps afterwards. And I mean, immediately the birds I can hear them pitching off and they landed to the left of the decoy setup, probably. 20 to 30 yards and then over the next five minutes uh, the rest of the whole flock came and landed 
in the setup, around the setup, behind us, in front of us. Uh, it was uh, pretty pretty fun, pretty chaotic for a few minutes there. Yeah, it looked like it. Um want to encourage anybody listening, if you're on Instagram, to check out Chris's um, videos. But you can go to Chris Stone. That's Chris Stone, just like it sounds. Uh, and is that 85, Chris? Uh, 185, yeah. One, 185, okay. And uh, check out uh, the cool video also on your YouTube channel. How do they find your YouTube channel? Uh, well, I don't personally have a YouTube channel, but in the past I've uh, some of my older hunts are on um, the Super Relentless 1 YouTube channel, which uh, that Super Relentless um, is an old uh, California magazine. Um, so there's a few hunts on there. Gotcha. Um, it looks like uh, I haven't had Max uh, or Matt Winters on um, the podcast yet, um, but I, I, I've talked about it with a um, podcast episode with uh, uh, Chris Rowe, and I've uh-huh. actually communicated with Matt Winters, um, you know, of Kansas Premier Outfitters, and he's kind of the one that started that uh, DSD decoy and the white face. I noticed that you... Well, correct me if I'm wrong, but did you did you not put a white face out? Yeah, so um, on the junior hunt Saturday, the uh, decoy spread that I had out, um, I want to say I had four or five different hens. I had the new uh, Dave Smith um, mating motion decoy set, which is a uh, Jake in the mating pose over a submissive hen and I actually about three to four feet away from that I had another submissive hen on the ground and yeah I uh um speaking with Matt and a couple of other guys who have really gotten on the the white head um you know kind of bandwagon or started it uh, I talked to them and they kind of told me about the success they've had and the meaning behind it and uh, so, yeah, when I got my my uh, Dave Smith uh, mating Jake decoy, I actually touched it up myself and made it more of a, a white color versus the red and white. And, um, you know, as, as you saw in the video, I mean, it worked phenomenal. Uh, it definitely got, got the attention and, um, you know, it only took a few seconds before it got pummeled and knocked to the ground. Yeah, you know, um, I saw uh, Dave Smith at NWTF, and I got to see this um, mating Jake, you know, on the on the breeder hen. Um, one of the things that I thought in the back of my mind, love the, you know, I think it's going to work like crazy, but as much as my ghouls down there in Mexico beat those decoys, I almost think we need to have some sort of way to fasten, if you will, the breeder, uh, uh, you know, the, the hen on the bottom, somehow be able to get her grounded and, and, you know, a stake of some kind because I feel like my birds, and I, you can talk about your reels, but those ghouls are going to come up and immediately, you know, try and knock that Jake over, which is going to knock the whole setup over. Um, how stable was it as far as on the ground if, if they start kicking at it and stuff? Do you think it's going to flip right over? Or do you think we need to, you know, put rocks on either side? Or what What do we need to do, you know, or maybe you don't think it's a concern to knock that thing over? Because I think they're going to come run into it and just beat beat that Jake to death. Yeah, I mean, they came in and 
you know, the depth I put the stake, I probably could have gone another three or four inches. Uh, the stake that comes with that uh, mating motion set is fairly uh, large and uh, it's thicker. It's longer than the original Jake stake or, um, you know, spike that you put in the ground. Um, so this coming weekend, I'm definitely going to plant it deeper because um, the birds that came the, in. The the mechanic uh, real fast. I, I actually saw the decoy at NWTF, but I didn't really mess with how the stake and how it all fits. Does it stick right down through the breeder and then you stick the jake on top? I didn't realize that. And if that's the case, then I think we're going to be a little more stable than I thought. I thought it was basically the stake is just sticking out of the mating uh, hen, but there's no actual nothing stuck in the ground. So educate me a little bit. So, kind of starting from the ground up, um, the new submissive hen that is with the mating set, um, Dave and Brad, they kind of redesigned it to have a much wider base. The wings kind of go out. It just, it's all in all, it, it's wider. It's got more surface area. So, that's going to make it tougher for it to flip over. Uh, then okay. the, the one stake that you use for the whole set um, does go straight down through the hen's back. There's a hole, and you just got to drive down that stake fairly deep, and then you place the jake on top of the stake, and in the okay. jake there is a plastic kind of a swiveling tube um, that goes that you pretty much set that over the stake um, in that right. swivel is what gives it the motion when you attach the string to it and give it a little bit of a tug. Um, all in all, I think it's going to be much, much better as far as getting knocked over um, and um, flipping over, so to speak. Um, and another thing that little trick I do, because um, I hunt some spots where the ground is fairly hard, so in my turkey vest, I always keep a rubber mallet. And so yep. when I've got super hard ground, um, while I'm setting up the decoys, I'll be pounding in those stakes deep. So that way, you know, if they come in and the decoys get walloped or whatever, uh, it just kind of prevents them from getting completely knocked out of the ground. Um, you know, sometimes they'll bend, but it, it seems to work a lot better for myself. Yeah, for sure. I mean, where we're, where we're doing our ghoul hunts down there, the ground is just so stinking hard. So, I mean, a rubber mallet is awesome. I usually use rocks, but then you're worried about, you know, a lot of times we got birds gobbling around and I'm trying to stab the decoys and it's like, frick, I cannot get the stake in the ground because the ground, you know, hasn't rained in 60 years down there type of thing. And it's like <laughs> the ground is, you know, the ground's so stinking hard, it's like concrete, but um, you know, the crazy thing is a couple times I feel like I've banged a rock on a stake and a bird's gobbled. I'm like, Dennis, they're gobbling to me, banging the stake in. Um, yeah. But I'm happy to hear that, that you've had good success with it. I think it's going to be a great um, decoy setup. I, I haven't gotten mine yet. I'm still in Colorado, but I'm heading back to Arizona. Um, did you give the Jake actual some play? And my question would be, how, how important is the movement, or do you think just the pose itself, standing on that breeding hen, they, they know exactly what that is? Obviously, the movement adds that much more, but I'm almost thinking just that pose alone is going to strike some birds' attention. 
Yeah, for sure. I mean, the pose will definitely strike some birds' attention. Um, on Saturday's hunt, um, due to the fact that a junior, um, her kind of her best effective range with her 20 gauge um, was kind of that 16, 17 yard to 25 yard range. So I had the Jake decoy out at about 20 yards. Well, um, the string that I have for the, the decoy mating motion set um, doesn't quite reach out that far, so I just didn't even mess with it. Um, you know, I do think, though, in, in the future on my hunts, especially archery, if I have the decoys closer, um, I will have the string attached to it just in case a bird comes into view. Um, I might give it just one little tug just to give it just a little bit of movement, and then once the bird is committed, then I'll just set the string down and, you know, get ready to, to shoot. Um, but I think it's a combination of both, you know, that'll work real effective, but honestly that the pose and the realism of the, you know, the decoy itself is probably going to be almost enough. Um, if it's not, I can only imagine a little bit of movement, um, you know, will seal the deal on the rest of the birds that might be a little stubborn to it. For sure. Um, let's talk a little bit about the whitehead and, um, you know, hopefully I can get Matt on here as well. And we keep kind of bouncing back and forth with each other, but, um, talk, talk to me about your idea of, you know, the, the, the wider head and what that is telling other turkeys, um, out there. So the white head speaking with Matt and a couple of of uh, his buddies, um, yeah, he, he kind of, he sent me a direct message on Instagram, and then we end up calling each other and talking about it, and he's been doing it for a couple of years now on the Dave Smith, Jake's, and full strut decoys, and what he has told me is uh, when a tom is getting ready to breed a hen, there's a hot, submissive hen with him, uh, the tom instead of getting in that fighting mode, he'll get in that loving mode, so to speak, and the color color will drop out of his head. So he's not as, you know, mad and fired up, and it'll turn more of that white color. And so he told me this, and, you know, being methodical about what I do personally, I went online and started Googling several videos and looking at magazines, at photographs of turkeys uh, mating uh, hens and 80 90 percent of the toms that I was seeing you know mating hens did have more of a white head and so it made completely you know made sense to me um, and so then that's why I painted on my mating set Jake decoy I touched it up made it more of a white head yeah um, <clears throat> I, I, I tend to agree uh, I think it's you know, a, a blue and a white, you know, that tends to mean everything's good. Anytime you get that red in there, you know, it's very common, I think, and Chris, I'm curious your opinion, Jake's, a lot of times, they have a lot of red on their head, and they, they typically show a lot of red. Um, I think it's sometimes, you know, obviously when gobblers turn red, I think it's when they're spooked or when they're scared. Um, but Jake seemed to have red a lot of the time. I think you add the fact that a Jake is mounting on a hen, um, 
and and then you have a Jake with a white, you know, whitish blue head, kind of a calm, like I'm I'm getting some action. I think it's going to drive those gobblers crazy. Yeah, yeah, I totally agree. Um, you know, and another point with the white head is you might have a bird that comes in and he sees that red head on a decoy and he might be a little shy of, you know, engaging the decoy. He might be more, um, you know, a lover versus a fighter type mood where if he sees that Jake decoy with that white head, he's just going to instantly get more jealous and he's going to want to get more involved because, um, you know, turkeys ultimately they want to mate and, you know, they're fighting because they want to mate. And so there's that whole pecking order. So when they see that white head, you know, they're thinking, okay, there's a submissive hen ready to go. Um, I need to get involved. I need to do something. Otherwise, I'm going to lose my turn, so to speak. Yeah, um, for sure. Talk a little bit about uh, conditions in California this year, how they're the same or different than years past, and uh, a little bit about your forecast. Um, so the last, say about a, the last month, month and a half, it's been a pretty wet, uh, rainy and snowy winter here in California. Before that, it was fairly dry, um, but the last four to six weeks have been very, very wet. Uh, we've had a lot of snow up high and even a lot of lower elevation snowstorms. Uh, so what I've seen is um, over the last few weeks, the turkeys are still grouped up quite a bit uh, until, you know, midday, afternoon. Uh, then I'm starting to see a few, you know, solo birds or, you know, males out there without the hens. But really, as of right now, the birds, for the most part, they're still grouped up quite a bit. So st still winter flocked looking, you know, in big groups, uh, lots of action on the roost, lots of gobbling just because of the big big groups, a lot of hen chatter and stuff. Um, yep. Do you think yep. that the timing, you know, have you seen it where it's maybe dried out and there's a lot more sunshine and maybe the birds have started breaking up and splitting off in years past, or do you think this is pretty common for, you know, where we're at, at you know, last week in March right now? I would say for the most part, this is pretty common. Um, you know, we do have a, a year here and there where it's com completely dry. We don't, you know, have this much, this much precipitation, um, you know, and the birds are already midway through their breeding. Um, I saw that, you know, about two or three years ago. Um, but this is kind of more than normal, I would say, for northern california um so as far as i'm concerned as a turkey hunter you know things are right on schedule and it should provide um to be quite a great year yeah i mean a couple years ago when it was just everything was burned up and it was so hot and you know it seemed like they were almost done by the time the season started uh for hunters this could be a huge blessing and a lot of rain and, and what have you and uh, in other words, so the, you know, California has a real liberal turkey season as far as dates. It might just be a banner uh, season. Not only, you know, it's so nice when everything's so green and, you know, the, the, the hills have, you know, the south-facing slopes haven't started turning, 
you know, yellow yet, and it's just such so lush and green. It's just a phenomenal time to be out there. I'm actually going to miss California this year um, and Texas for that matter. But, um, you know, California, we've had so many great hunts over there. And um, talk a little bit about your birds. I believe most of what you're hunting are Rios. Um, you know, they, you may have some Merriams, but talk a little bit about kind of your area and what, what you're seeing as far as types of birds. Yeah. Um, majority of the birds, you know, I'm hunting, um, are in the, the lower elevation from the valley floor up to three, 4,000 foot elevation. And they are Rio Grande turkeys. Um, occasionally, um, one or two times during the season, I will venture up the mountain, and uh, according to the NWTF, you get above about 6,000 foot elevation, and you start getting into uh, what they consider are Merriams. Um, even at that elevation, I've seen some, you know, birds that look like a Merriams, but I've also seen some that look Rio, then, you know, you've got the cross the hybrid type turkeys um but yeah for the most part where i'm hunting they're they're rio grande california is an interesting state because it's such a giant state and it actually has a lot of turkeys um when you really you know look at it there's a lot of turkeys i get a lot of people asking me questions about public land turkey hunting in california and i really don't know how to answer the question for them but in your mind, you know, someone that's lived there for a long time and, and hunted, are there opportunities in California where the public land turkey hunting is pretty decent? Or would you tell people that, you know, plan on uh, paying a trespass fee and trying to get on private ground? Or, you know, in Arizona, we have some phenomenal uh, public land turkey hunting and actually not very, very little private land hunting. Um, but it, it's kind of... In my mind, from what I know, it's you know kind of the opposite in California because you have a ton of hunters, um, and they're all pounding that public ground. But are are there places, you know, that guys can go and find some pretty good public ground hunting? Yeah, yeah, there are. I mean, California does have quite a bit of national forest uh, ground and property. Um, majority of it, you know, starts in that. I would say three to four thousand foot elevation and goes up. Um, you know, I know quite a few guys that are really hardcore turkey hunters who know how to hit those hills and they have no problem finding birds and killing birds. Um, of course, they do have to deal with you know more hunters and pressured birds occasionally. But as long as you know someone's willing to get on the public ground. Uh, willing to get away from the roads, put some miles on the boots, um, cover ground, you can find plenty of turkeys on national forest ground. Your rios that you're hunting, as far as um, roosting, are there particular trees that you can go back and say, listen, if you find you know this type of tree, you know, look at it real close because that's where the turkeys are going to roost, or are there pr any particular you know, characteristics of, of, you know, terrain or, you know, not only vegetation type with the trees, but, you know, over water, over creeks, like where you go, that's a, that's a roosting spot or, you know, black oaks or 
sycamores or whatever the you know whatever the trees might be ponderosas i mean in your country can you talk a little bit about that yeah so i mean it it really varies on the terrain and the elevation uh there's spots i hunt um in the lower lower foothills where it's absolutely all the trees are uh oak trees and so turkeys will roost in the oak trees um you go up in elevation 500 feet to a thousand foot then you'll start to get oaks mixed in with uh what i call a digger pine i think some people call them ponderosas um and usually once you get a mix of diggers uh the turkeys will roost in diggers and then once you get up a little higher you'll start to get more into the pine tree type habitat and turkeys will roost in pine trees um as far as location of where they roost in those trees, I tend to see that um, they will be, you know, halfway to three-quarters of the way up a hill in a, in a digger or pine tree or an oak tree roosted to where they have a good visual vantage of everything below them and, uh, and also kind of above them. So they have more than one... Uh, exit route from their roost to where they can pitch off and land to once they've kind of checked it over and, <clears throat> you know, made sure that's clear of any danger down below, so to speak. Yeah, and uh, now in California, I believe 4 o'clock is the shutoff time, meaning you cannot hunt past 4 o'clock. You can still roost, but you, you can't harvest a bird after 4 o'clock in the afternoon. Is that still the same? No, it actually, last last year it changed um, to 5 o'clock, and it's the same this year. So you can go up to 5 o'clock. Okay. Um, how much of your success depends on you guys roosting birds and putting them in the tree overnight so that you're set up, you know, right on them in the next morning, or do you not rely much on your roosting? Um. Yeah, I'd say over the years, probably only 20% of the turkeys we kill are off, off the roost or, you know, a roost hunt. I would say probably 80% of the successful hunts and harvests we have are, you know, that later morning, mid-morning, 9, 10 o'clock, and on into in, the afternoon. Um, you know, it's just... Uh, the morning time off the roost, you got to deal with birds that are hend up, um, and so unless you have fooled the whole flock and you happen to be in the spot where they land to or where they're going to uh, get together as a flock and then get in their path, um, it can be tough because the hens can go one direction and take the toms with them and you won't see or hear from them for two or three hours. Um, and then that, you know, nine, ten o'clock when the toms start to break away from the hens looking for receptive hens, that's when, you know, the birds start gobbling on their own. And, uh, we've had a lot better success and better luck that mid morning. So, I mean, do you intentionally leave them alone off the roost and let them go do their thing and then try and pick off individuals or pick off smaller groups rather than, you know, and you got to kind of watch, don't you think? I mean, with some of the ground that you're hunting, if, if you're hunting private ground or even public ground, you know, and, and they're consistently roosting there, 
you know, you got to watch hunting them on the roost or near their roost because they'll it'll kind of, you know, squirrel them up, if you will. Um, and so, is that a strategy, or is it just the fact that wherever you got to get to, you can't get to them where they're roosted? Is I mean, talk a little bit about why you don't attack them more right off the roost. Yeah, I mean, I, mean, I, I definitely hunt them off the roost. Um, my opinion, the more time, you know, you're in the field hunting them, the higher odds you are of, of killing them. Um, but regarding a roost hunt, um, I try not to get too close to the roost, and I try not to overpressure them um, due to the fact that I don't like to screw up their natural routine of where they're roosting and, you know, maybe where they're coming off the roost and their travel path after that, um, if that kind of makes a little bit of sense. So, yeah, I do kind of ease up on the pressure and don't. I try not to get too close, um, you know, depending on which spot I'm hunting or which roost I'm hunting. Um, but for the most part, um, yeah, I, I definitely don't. Don't try to get too aggressive early early on off the roost. Um, otherwise, on some of the properties I hunt, it might just push them off that property, and they might roost on a different property, and then that kind of ruins my hunting there for you know a few days or a week or so. Yeah, I get it. Uh, talk a little bit about your archery setup because you, I mean, you hunt these birds with your bow. Um, Obviously, this junior's hunt, this youth hunt that you just went on was a shotgun, but, I mean, you and your buddies primarily bow hunt these turkeys. Uh, talk a little bit about your setup for, for hunting them with a bow. So, kind of my own personal belief is hunt a turkey with a, a archery setup as heavy as you would big game, deer, elk, um, because, you know, turkeys, believe it or not, those feathers and their bones, um, you know, they're they're like a shield. Uh, if you have too light of a setup or too light of an arrow, not enough bow poundage, uh, you're going to have you're going to come into problems if you hit one in the wing in the wing joint, or if you hit one, you know, facing away from you, right in, into their back or their rib cage. Um, I mean, I've seen guys and and gals with light setups shoot a bird and the arrow bounces right off you know then they're discouraged and they don't know what happened and i tell them well it's your setup's too light so me personally um i shoot the same pretty much same setup that i shoot deer and big game with um i'm currently shooting about 74 pounds uh, i have about a 440 grain arrow and um, I'm shooting either uh, a rad fixed broadhead or uh, a big expandable, like a kill zone or hypodermic. And you're a body shot guy, not as much a head shot guy. Talk a little bit about that. Yeah, um, I've kind of gone back and forth, but really the last eight years, I've really stuck with body shots. Um, I just think that you have um, more opportunity going with a body shot versus a head shot. Uh, majority of today's um, head shot broadheads, like the Magnus Bullhead and Muzzy makes one, 
really you're kind of limited out to about 20 yards and you've got that head and neck. Um, you know, when a turkey comes in and he's beating up on the decoy, even if it's at six or eight yards, you know, a lot of times that bird is shucking and jiving, it's moving around, and that head, that, that's kind of hard to follow, you know, with the bow, um, where if they're doing that, I feel with a body shot, even though that head's bobbing and weaving, usually the body is not moving as fast as the head. And so I feel like, you know, that gives you more opportunity to get a cleaner body shot, plus it extends your range. So if a bird hangs up or spooks or gives you a second opportunity and it's, you know, out there past 20 yards, it's at 30 or 40 yards, um, you still have an opportunity to make a good shot uh, with a body shot. <clears throat> do you want the arrow to blow through them or do you want the arrow to stay in the bird? Um, you know, I've, I've killed some where the arrow stayed in them and they anchored right down. Um, but I've also had some where, uh, the arrow blew completely through them and they anchored right down. Um, like anything else, if I can get a complete pass through, I'd rather get that due to the fact, you know, two holes is better than one, especially if you hit them in the vitals, it's going to bleed out quicker have a quicker recovery um i know some people they kind of like that uh head and arrow to stick in the bird they think it'll anchor them um but in my honest opinion it's kind of all about hitting them in a, in the vitals um you know i've seen arrows go into a bird shish kebab into the bird but it wasn't through the vitals and believe it or not that turkey was gone um you know never to be seen again and i've seen and heard several horror stories like that and so um my own personal liking and opinion is um you know i have a heavy heavy setup for a reason and as much vitals and tissue and bone as i can you know damage um which you know you're going to get more of that with the pass-through that's in my opinion i think that's better Talk a little bit about when you whack a bird with a bow. A lot of guys like to jump up and run after them. What's your thought on leave them be or jump up and chase after them? <laughs> um, you know, I, I completely, uh, me and my buddies, we joke about this, but I think to get up and jump after them is absolutely the worst thing you can do um, due to the fact that if you have a sub-marginal hit where that turkey's not going to die for, you know, four or five minutes, 15 minutes, a half hour, or an hour, and you get up and jump after them, that bird has enough energy, and I've seen it before, that it can take off and it can fly for miles. And then if it gets out of sight and you don't see where it goes, it ends up going into no man's land and then it dies, you're not going to recover that bird. Um, my belief is if you hit a bird, um, knock an arrow right away. Be prepared for a cleanup shot if need be. If you can get another shot, another arrow into a bird and he's not down, um, do that. Um, otherwise, just be still. Let the bird slowly walk off into the brush. And if you've made you know, a vital hit or even 
kind of a minimal vital hit. Majority of the time, they're not going to go far. They're going to go rest somewhere, and they'll die right where you almost last saw them disappear. I want to take a quick second here, uh, Chris, and thank the sponsors of this podcast. Uh, for everybody that's listened to this podcast for a while, they know that GoHunt.com is my title sponsor, and the GoHunt Insider is the best resource for any Western hunter out there. I want to encourage them to go to GoHunt.com Insider, click on the blue Join Now button, use the J. Scott promo code, and they're going to get a $50 GoHunt Gear Shop gift card, and they can be immediately spending that money in the gift shop, uh, in that in the gear shop. And uh, I want to thank GoHunt for their sponsorship. Uh, we're right in application season right now. We've got you know a deadline in Colorado on. On April 3rd, we've got Nevada. We've got a bunch of the states, um, you know, still to go. And uh, Go Hunt Insider is the best resource for any Western hunter out there. also want to thank Kuyu Ultralight Hunting. Make sure to go to kuyu.com to find out about all of their uh, ultralight hunting products. Jason Harrison and his crew just make the finest uh, ultralight hunting gear on the market today, in my opinion. Uh, also, phonescope.com, use the JScott16 promo code. You're going to get a 10% discount there with Phonescope. And Phonescope makes digiscoping adapters where they can take any optic and match it with any phone. You can be taking photos and videos immediately. Uh, use the JScott16 promo code. You're going to get a 10% discount. And the Outdoorsman, the Optics Authority, Cody Nelson and his crew, 1-800-291-8065 or on Outdoorsmans.com. If you use the J. Scott promo code, you're going to get a 10% discount. So call the guys or go online and order and use the J. Scott promo code for a 10% discount. I want to thank the, those guys, uh, those sponsors, for uh, you know supporting my podcast. And um, my hat's off to them for uh, you know sticking with me as long as they have. And you know they've been loyal for a long time, and I really appreciate that. Chris, I noticed that you and your buddies don't use ground blinds a whole lot. Talk a little bit about, you know, is it, is it a, do you think you're more effective without a blind? Is it the fact that you don't want to carry a blind? Do you think birds are scared off of the blinds? Or why do you typically not use a ground blind? Um, so we typically do not use a ground blind um, due to the fact that for me personally and for the guys I hunt with, bow hunting turkeys without a blind and calling them in close and getting to full draw and harvesting a turkey is is a, a big feat. It's um it's challenging. It's in my opinion it's much more challenging to do versus hunting out of a blind. Uh due to the fact that you gotta rely on your camouflage uh to blend you in, you gotta rely on your setup you got to rely on when to draw your bow, whether that turkey goes behind a bush, a tree, or uh, you draw when he's attacking the decoys or his fans blocking his head. Um, but, you know, I just personally like to make it more challenging. I feel um, more accomplishment when it comes together, and I harvest a bird without a blind call him in within 20 yards when he's on the decoys uh just kind of being out in the open not being in a blind 
um, I get more adrenaline rush. Um, I just I feel it's more of a challenge. Um, so that's kind of that's kind of the reason why we do it. For you, it's more of how you do it, and it's more of a sport, in your opinion. It's more of a challenge if you do it on the ground without a blind. You're definitely not saying other people using blind. You're just saying for what you like to do and the way you like to do it, you like to go without a blind for the ultimate challenge. Correct. And, you know, I have nothing against hunting with a blind. Um, to be quite honest, um, I got a brand-new spot this year that's loaded with birds, and they roost in a canyon with trees, but everything around it is completely wide open. I mean, there's no brush, there's no trees. It's going to be very difficult to hunt these birds with a bow without a blind, so more than likely, um, you know, I'll revert and use a blind at this location, um, you know, and then when taking other people out, um, you know, depending on their kind of their hunting skill level, we'll use a blind if necessary. Um, you know, it's a, it's a tool when it comes to hunting, whether bow hunting, shotgun hunting, um, and based upon the hunter himself or herself. Um, it's just, like you said, my own personal opinion for myself, if, when I'm hunting and harvesting, I try to do it without a blind. Talk a little bit about your kind of your run-and-gun decoy setup sequence as far as how far are you from your decoys and what are your go-to decoys that you'll always set out on a spread if you have time to, you know, throw them out and stab them? You know, what will you always try and run, um, you know, this season? Uh, more likely this season I will run the mating motion set with the white head just to kind of see its effect, see uh, the difference it makes, whether it's better or worse versus the regular Jake decoy uh i will always at least put the one standing alert hen up um i might put up to three or four hens out it just kind of depends on the setup and the time of day um off the roost i'll more likely have a small flock decoy setup um where maybe later in the day i'll have um, either the Jake or the mating motion set and maybe one or two extra hens. That's it. Um, you know, and majority of the time I always have the decoys anywhere from 10 to 20 yards away from my shooting position. Talk about position, you know, from a position standpoint, let's say on a clock that the bird is out at 12 o'clock straight out in front of you. Um, will you set the decoys straight between you and the bird? Will you set them off at a 45, you know, at say 9 o'clock or 10 o'clock, and, and then talk about your position, uh, you know, in relation to where you think the bird is coming from to where the decoys are and to where your setup position is. And obviously it depends with every setup, but ideally talk a little bit about your angle of setup and how you like to do that. Um, you know, of course I'm going to try to set up the decoys to where once the bird gets within a certain yardage, whether it's, you know, 40, 50 yards to 100 yards, they're more visible. Um, but for bow hunting without a blind, a lot of my strategy is setting the decoys up in a manner where 
once the bird commits and comes to the decoys, uh, he has to go behind a tree or a bush. That way it gives me an opportunity to draw. Um, of course, there's going to be some circumstances where I just don't have trees or bushes to, uh, you know, draw when that turkey goes behind them. So in that case, I'll just put it, you know, out in front of me or maybe at a 45-degree angle. And usually in those circumstances, uh, I'll let the turkey come all the way in and I'll wait to draw until the turkey is either engaging the decoys or he's covering his head or his vision with his fan or distracting himself one way or another. Good stuff there. I want to talk a little bit about the calls you use. And, you know, I'm curious always, you know, if you're like me, you've always got different calls working and you're always trying something new. And, um, you know, then there's some guys that they just got the same call and that's all they use. And, that, and you know, everybody's got their own system. I'm, I'm a bit of a tinkerer. I'm a bit of a guy that, you know, loves trying all kinds of stuff. What are you running this season? Is there anything new to your setup uh, in the calling department? Uh, so this year um, I'm using majority of my calls are uh, mother load turkey calls. <clears throat> um, a buddy of mine, Joe, who lives out of Linden, California, he per he makes mother load turkey calls and he's the owner of the call company. Um, I really like his calls. Um, I've used them for the last couple of years. Um, so I've, I run a couple different slates that he makes, but I also have a couple older uh, aluminum mad call slates that I carry in my vest as well. And then I also have three to four different uh, mouth read calls that I use as well. Joe's also a friend of mine, and um, I've used his calls from time to time. The one thing I really like about his mouth calls is they seem to have a lot of snap to them. Um, you know, they're, they're, they don't require a ton of air pressure, and they're, they've got a real nice, for me, uh, you can make some pretty good turkey sounds with them. I like a call that's got quite a bit of, you know, snap. Do you know what I'm talking about, you know, as far as? responsiveness yeah. with not a lot of air pressure. And it seems like Joe, um, he, he made a bat wing kind of type call, which is a two-read call that I used to really like. And then he kind of had another, I forget what he called it, but um, another cutter type call that I thought was uh, very, very good. What exact yeah. cuts do you like? Um, so, yeah, to kind of add to what you said, uh, his call's, his mouth recalls are easy to blow. They're they're very easy to get a natural turkey uh, sound from them. I think that's because the the reed material he uses is a little bit softer than some of the other big companies use, um, which those take almost like a break-in period before they start getting easier to blow and easier to use. Um, and then as far as the different designs. Um, I prefer either the Batwing that you say you use, and I also, um, he's got one that's very similar to the Batwing, but it's got kind of a cutout. I think some guys refer to it as like a J-hook, um, and that one I, I like a lot. Uh, most of the calls that 
I seem to get a better sound out of are at least two, if not a three read mouth mouth call. Yeah, for sure. Now, California, you get quite a bit of moisture on those, you know, days when it, you know, I, I pulled out my box or my slate and, you know, it's you're sitting in the dark and you're, you know, hens start going and all of a sudden you start trying to, you know, apply pressure on your pot or peg call or pot and peg call or slate call and all of a sudden your strike rate just doesn't sound anything like what you've been, you know, practicing for the last couple months and a lot of that's moisture. Um, do you battle that, and are there any particular tips that you can give for those mornings when, you know, there's quite a bit of moisture in the air and, and those friction calls are going to sound differently? Yeah. Um, you know, I've, I've run into that several times. Uh, I try to keep one or two slates in a plastic Ziploc bag in my vest just, in, you know, in case it starts raining or there's a lot of moisture. Um, it'll keep that call dry until I use it. Now, of course, you know, if I pull it out and it's really dewy or it's raining, uh, it only takes one or two drops on that striker or that slate surface, and that call's dead. Um, so, you know, even if I keep it in a plastic bag inside my vest, you know, it's it just nothing you can really do against that. Um, so, of course, I always have my mouth calls with me as my backup. So, you know, I can still be in the game. Would you say your go-to is friction calls or your go-to is mouth calls, you know, day in, day out? What's your what's the first call you're going to reach for? It, it's kind of a toss-up, and it kind of depends where I'm hunting and the terrain. Um, you know, if, if, uh, if I'm expecting birds to be fairly close or I'm in kind of a thicker terrain, Usually, I'll start off with a mouth call at, you know, fairly low to mid-volume. You know, see if I get a response. If I don't, then I'll put more volume into my mouth call. Uh, if I don't get a response after that, then I'll usually pull out the slate and start getting loud and aggressive. Um, I can definitely get much more loud and uh, aggressive you know, with a slate versus a mouth call. Um, but I have had times where, you know, a bird will respond better to a mouth call versus a slate. So it kind of, you know, it depends what I'm doing. If I'm trying to locate a bird, usually I start with the mouth call and then I'll work up to the slate. Um, but then once I've got a bird responding, I'll just kind of see what he's responding best to and I'll stick with that call. Once you get them hot, you stay with it. Um, is there ever a circumstance where you use a gobble call at all? Um, I I have not, Jay. Um, you know, I know people who have, and it works great for them. Um, you know, let's that Tom think that you know there's an intruder, there's some competition, and it helps bring in a bird. Um, you know, you can only just carry so much stuff in your, your vest with you. And like I said earlier, I've got mallets in my vest. So, you know, um, it's, you know, a gobble call is just one of the things I've never been a, a huge uh, fan of or used much, you know, use that often. Are you guys going to get uh, Chad Mendez out there this year? Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, we'll, we'll get out with him. Uh, we've got a couple... 
hunts lined up with him. Um, we've got a, uh, a hunt that Chad, uh, donated to the California Deer Association. Um, <clears throat> and I believe we're, we're taking out a, um, 17 or 18 year old kid on his first turkey hunt. He's the one who, uh, won the hunt in the, in the raffle at the California Deer Association banquet. So that'll be a lot of fun. So yeah, we're, 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 plan on getting together a few times that's good that sounds great well man i wish you the best of success on the upcoming season it's going to be fun i want to encourage the listeners uh to check chris's instagram page out that's chris stone 185 got a really cool instagram page and a huge bow hunter uh what do you have on the horizon coming up uh outside of turkey looking forward have you drawn anything or do you have any plans uh, for deer, elk, or sheep, or anything uh, coming forward this fall? Yeah, so, you know, here in California, I'll put in for all the big game species, um, but pretty much the big hunt that uh, I'm looking forward to is, you know, a few weeks ago, I found out I did draw the uh, Arizona archery bull tag. No kidding, you turkey. I didn't know about that. <laughs> what do you got? What do you yeah. got in your pocket, you sly little dog? uh it's um uh you know it's it's a it's in a northern it's a it's north it's a unit you don't want to mention <laughs> secret yeah. unit. you're getting top it's a secret, secret unit, unit. i'll, secret I'll, I'll unit. talk secret with you later about it <laughs> one of those but, secret uh, units is it your first arizona elk tag uh it's my second i drew um i drew a tag four years ago as well <clears throat> So, so I'm, got doing, high I'm doing fairly good in Arizona. I, to be honest, uh, I love Arizona. <laughs> I know you come down and shoot a whitetail, seems like, every year down in Arizona and hunt, hunt during the rut. And uh, now you're going to be taking one of our Arizona bulls home with you. Yeah, that, let's, um, fingers crossed, but uh, I'm, I'm looking forward to it. And, you know, I'm, I'm definitely in turkey mode, but I'll tell you what, Arizona elk's right there on my mind, and I'm having a hard time focusing on turkeys not thinking about arizona bulls right now well that's cool i'm i'm i hope you do well in the secret unit i always crack up uh guys um you can always tell a lot about a guy when he's when he he blushes and then he won't tell you the unit that he's hunting you know he's got high hopes for a a great hunt and i mean that uh with a smile on my face and it, it you know I, I i'm the same way about a lot of stuff too i mean it you know I, I do my podcast and I try and be as informational and educational as I can and get, you know, get as much out there as I can and help people. Um, but we all have our secret spots. We all have our, you know, our places that we love to go or places that we want to go and we don't want other people following us around or what have you. And so I get it. Um, I'll have to do a follow-up podcast on the secret unit after the elk season. And, you know, <laughs> yeah, hopefully we can do that. it's, as bad as I've, um, you know, I've caught, you know, I've caught some serious grief from guys saying, why have you been so hard on Arizona this year with the drought and everything? And I'm like, listen, like, I've been doing this for over 20 years. Like, I, I know a drought when I see it. I'm hoping for the best, and I'm hoping all you guys that have elk tags, like, don't get me wrong. I want everybody to have a great hunt. But, you know, when I was covering the draws and all the stuff, I got to call it what it is. And, you know, it's super, super dry. 
Um, hopefully yeah. we can have, you know, a wet spring and hopefully we can have early monsoons. And, you know, I, I would wish nothing more than to have, you know, as much rain as we possibly can. But uh, I think it's going to be a little bit tough. But, you know, any Arizona elk tag is, is usually better than most. And I uh, wish you the best of success on that. And thanks, um, thanks, thanks for coming in and sharing here on the podcast. And uh, I've had you on before, and, and uh, you always provide good, valuable information. So I appreciate that. Hey, I, I appreciate uh, doing it for you, and I um, always enjoy it. And I uh, wish you luck this, this year as well. Sounds good. I've got... Um, uh, doll sheep fever myself. I've I've uh, got a hunt in the Northwest Territories, and then I actually, you know, my wife was like, "Didn't you know that you had a Northwest Territories doll sheep hunt when you applied for Alaska?" I was like, "Yeah, but I didn't think I was going to draw it. I drew the one non-resident tag um, there in the Chugach uh, with Lance Holmberger, oh, and uh, so I've got two doll sheep hunts: one in July and one in." August and uh, so I'm I'm looking forward to that for sure and I've got a lot to do before now and then but uh, uh, looking for that's definitely on my radar as you know nice that's uh, awesome I'm a, I'm jealous of the summer J. <laughs> well I'm excited about it and buddy we'll go go knock down some birds and uh, keep up the good work with posting the great pictures and uh, uh, you know enjoy it it's a beautiful your state California. Uh, it's a beautiful place uh, in, a, in, a, in a lot of regards. Um, obviously, there's things there that, uh, that we all wish probably were different, but there's a lot of beautiful places in California uh, for sure. And, you know, just a contrast for me with that just bright green grass that you guys have, you know, this time of year. And then, you know, is it the rosebud tree? I think it's rosebud. Um, that just bl- blossoms in full pink. I mean, just incredible colors. Yeah, yeah, that, and then also the lupin. Um, you know, that blue lupin really blooms it's out. Incredible. It, uh, it's 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 pretty awesome here in the springtime. It you know, some people look at it like wonder if you know, it's Ireland sometimes. <laughs> it's it's incredible for sure. I miss it. I got to get back out there. So, all right, buddy, take care. God bless, and um, knock them dead. Okay. All right, Jay, I appreciate it. Thanks, and it was good talking with you. You too, bye.